sometime between 64 and 67 A.D., the Apostle Peter wrote a letter to fellow believers in the area that's now modern-day Turkey. And he exhorted them to keep on keeping on. These believers in Christ were experiencing sufferings and various difficulties because of their faith. And as we've been looking at this letter, we've seen that Peter encourages them to keep on in hope, the hope that's set in heaven for them. They're to keep on in holiness. They're to keep on in conduct. And then he reaches this overarching conclusion. If you turn in your Bibles or Seatback Bible to 1 Peter chapter 2, this is where we left off last week. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 12, it's kind of a summation of what he's been saying about their identity of who they are in Christ. And then he says, Beloved, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Remember, there are all kinds of charges being leveled against these followers of Jesus in the first century. They were accused of cannibalism. You know, they talked about uh, eating the body of Christ and drinking his blood, the idea of in the communion table. They, they were accused of tampering with family relationships. Um, th there was the, the idea that they were turning slaves against their masters as slaves came to faith in Christ and discovered this dignity and worth that they had in Christ. They were slandered for, as they said, being hateful of mankind because they were saying that the world and the church were opposed to each other. They, they were also accused of being disloyal to Caesar because they refused to bow down and worship him as God. Now, I know these aren't the accusations against Christians today, but there are still critics who believe Christians are ignorant and racist and bigoted and dangerous. Uh, and certainly Christians experience difficulties and, and, and suffering and trials just as those in the first century. And I say that because Peter's letter is relevant to us today just as it was in the first century. And so Peter... Uh, calls on them to live a life above reproach. What an amazing call. They're to live in such a way that they won't give ammunition to their spiritual enemies. And in the letter, Peter now delves into three areas of life where a potential conflict might appear uh, in their situation because these are former pagans that have come out of pagan culture and believed in Christ. I tried to put myself back into their shoes. I don't know if this is the kind of advice they wanted to hear. I don't know if it's what they expected to hear. I suspect maybe they were a little surprised by some of the things that Peter's going to say. You know, maybe, maybe it's like this advice for grandpa. I read this week about a lady that was talking. She said, I was maybe two and a half years old. Someone had given me a little tea set as a gift. And it was one of my favorite toys. Grandpa was sitting in the living room engrossed in the evening news when I brought him a little cup of tea, which was just water. After several cups of tea and lots of praise for such a yummy tea, my grandma came home. My grandpa made her wait in the living room to watch me bring a cup of tea because it was just the cutest thing. Grandma waited, and sure enough, here I came down the hall with a cup of tea, uh, you know, for, it was for Grandpa, and, and, I, and I watched him drink it all up. 
And then she said, as only a grandma would know, did it ever occur to you that the only place she can reach to get water is in the toilet? <laughs> Some things you just don't want to know. And maybe, maybe that's these readers as well. Having exhorted them to live their lives carefully, Peter turns his attention to three significant situations within which these believers would find themselves. The first is within society, particularly in relationship to governing authorities. The second is within the marketplace, the relationship between Christian slave and one's earthly master. And the third area, interestingly, is in the marriage relationship specifically between a Christian wife and her unbelieving husband. In each of these situations, Peter appeals for an attitude of submission. Look at the text there of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Be subject. Uh, chapter 2, verse 18. Be subject. Chapter 3, verse 1. Be subject. Within all three areas of life, Peter appeals to this behavior, and he does it for two reasons. One is evangelistically. Look at chapter 2, verse 15. Peter says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And then chapter 3, verse 1, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husband, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. The second reason is that we've been given Christ's example to follow. And we'll deal with that a little bit more detail in a minute. But Peter begins how a Christian living in that time, in that culture, should relate to governing authority. So let's look at the text starting at 1 Peter 2, starting at verse 13. Peter writes, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be the emperor as supreme or as governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now, Peter's not the only New Testament writer who gives instructions about the Christian's responsibility to government. Uh, let's go see what the Apostle Paul has to say. If you would turn in your Bibles back to the book of Romans and chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. I'm going to start reading at verse 1, where Paul says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong... Be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. 
taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. When you put these two passages together, you discover five reasons why someone should obey governing authorities. The first is that government is ordained by God. The second is that government restrains evil. Additionally, government rewards good. Fourth, government punishes evil. And fifth, submission provides a good testimony. Now, Christians throughout the centuries have wrestled with the relationship between believers and the state. Because we have to ask, are Paul and Peter's instructions absolute? Uh, if not, what are the exceptions? Now, there's probably a lot of reasons surrounding why these two apostles wrote what they did. One of the probable reasons for this teaching was an incorrect view of government from those in the church. Uh, perhaps there was an unbalanced view that was fueled by the broader culture of civil unrest. Uh, there probably was some influence of a group called the Zealots. That was a Jewish movement. This disdained any rule of government apart from God's rule. Uh, they not only opposed taxes, uh, they were sworn to attempts to overthrow government. They would fit into what we call today terrorists. Their modus operandi was political assassination. Uh, you remember Jesus had a disciple who was a zealot. Uh, some Christians evidently chafed under the oppression of Roman rule, which was brutal. But feeling that their allegiance to God meant that they had to defy government. Still others wrestled with what constituted identity with the world. Uh, you know, what does it mean to be separate from the world? Those questions still exist in the 21st centuries. Paul's treatment of the subject in his letter to the Romans is a follow-on to the exhortation to his readers to not return evil for evil. And his whole point is this is not the prerogative of the individual. That authority, that action is given unto the state. And so Paul and Peter say Christians should submit to the governing authorities. Now the word submit or be subject is a military term. It means to rank under. Uh, it, recognize that you stand under government as part of God's plan for human society. Now, it would be easy to dismiss an evil secular government like Rome and, and exempt yourself from submission to it. But God has used and does use human rulers to accomplish his divine purposes, even if we can't see it at the time. Uh, look at this passage from the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, where God tells the people of Israel, because you've not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. Isn't that interesting? A secular ruler, and yet God calls him my servant. And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all those surrounding nations. The act of submitting to government honors God and demonstrates submission to God and his rule. 
Now, there is a valid question to be asked, and that is there ever a time when obedience to government is wrong? We know from scriptural examples that when believers are asked to do things contrary to God's clear will, a higher law comes into play. Let me illustrate. In two instances in the book of Acts, the apostles declare this to be right. Uh, When commanded by the authorities to stop talking about Jesus, they replied, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Again, when told they must be silent, the apostles said, we must obey God rather than men. There are many examples in the Old Testament when believers in God refused to obey government edicts because they directly contradicted God's will. But the general rule seems to be that we obey government when it takes its place under God. We can disobey civilly when government takes the place of God. Folks, we may come to that place in our country in the near future if some governing authorities have their way legislatively. For example, should abortion be commanded and demanded rather than just permitted as it is today? Should Christian pastors be uh, subject to prosecution if they continue to teach that marriage is one man and one woman? Uh, That's already been proposed in California. The day may come where it's necessary that we who stand for Christ must be involved in that. Now, in the discussion relating to governing authorities, we have to take into consideration the fact that we are not living under an authoritative dictatorship as they were in the first century. We live in a democratic republic. There are options available to us for legitimate legal means of dissension, and we, to be good citizens, should take advantage of those means. We vote. We can protest, we can march, we can do those things. Should the time come for civil disobedience, uh, it is imperative that those who do so be prepared to suffer the consequences. That is what comes with that. But I think, again, we have to be careful to distinguish between what government mandates and what government allows. Those are two big things that are different. Well, Peter reminds his readers and us of the dangers of misusing our freedoms in Christ. Look back in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16. Peter says, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. We have to be careful that we don't take our freedoms and misuse them. Um, In Christ we are free. Uh, But with freedom comes responsibility as well. Uh, Peter sums up his thoughts on social responsibility in verse 17. He says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. In other words, show respect to everyone. Everyone deserves that. Remember the dignity and the worth and the value of every human being created in the image of God. Have a special love, though, he says, for fellow believers. And then an interesting thing, fear God, honor the king. That's interesting when you think about it, because only God is worthy of fear, of reverence, of awe. To the king we give honor, to those in authority. 
So this is what's required of a Christian in relation to governing authorities, that we might maintain a good testimony. There's another area where Peter has to turn his attention to and, and give some apostolic teaching, and that is how does a Christian slave now relate to their earthly master? Look at 1 Peter 2.18. Peter writes, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. The term that Peter uses for servants indicates that these were household servants or slaves. For the most part, these are Christians working in the homes of pagan masters. Now, we need to think differently about slavery that's talked about in the scriptures from what we think of in pre-Civil War America. There were an estimated 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire, half of everyone who was living in the empire. Uh, they didn't just perform menial tasks, they were doctors lawyers, teachers, secretaries, uh, but for whatever reason, they either chose to or their parents chose to put them into, into slavery. That was the kind of slaves. Um, almost all the work in Rome was done by slaves. Roman citizens just lived idle lives. Uh, many slaves were loved and, loved and trusted, but a slave was still considered a thing and had absolutely no legal rights. The master's will was the law. And then comes Christianity with its message that every person is precious in the sight of God, that has inherent dignity and worth before God, that God loves everyone, and social barriers begin to fall inside the church. Uh, we, we know from history that slaves formed the greatest part of the early church. But then that brings two dangers along with it. Uh, on, on, on one hand, if a slave and one's master were both believers, there was the danger that the slave might presume upon this spiritual relationship and uses it as an excuse to be lazy, to be not accountable for one's work, uh, to shrink one's duty, to show disrespect for the position of their master. I suppose that's still a danger today if we think employee-employer as, as some kind of a, an example there. Sometimes a believer working for another believer may presume wrongly that they can do what they want, that they can get by with just a little less uh, in terms of doing job performance. But that's, that's not how it ought to be, is it? It shouldn't be that way. In fact, Paul makes this point when he writes his letter to the Colossians. Look at this. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he's done, and there's no partiality. I mean, a believer ought to be more conscientious than anyone. It kind of comes with who we are as a people of God. In Peter's day, there was a danger that this new sense of self-worth and dignity and spiritual freedom that the slave now had would cause him to rebel and to seek to abolish the system under which they found themselves. Now, this is a very troublesome thing for some Christians. Um, and, 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 and it's this. Why doesn't the New Testament 
talk more about the evil of slavery and seek for its abolishment. Um, but think of it this way. If we could put ourselves back in the shoes in the first century, to encourage slaves to rebel would have meant disaster. Revolts had always been quickly and savagely crushed. In addition, uh, it would have made Christianity look like a subversive religion and would have clearly led it to be outlawed by the state. Instead, the emphasis within the New Testament is, is how to discover how one is to live rightly or Christianly in whatever situation one found themselves, whether slave or free. Now, there's a second danger. And Peter goes on to say, don't just be submissive to masters that are good, that are gentle, but even to those who are unreasonable. Look at the text, verse 19. Peter says, for this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So Peter cautions against selective submission, selective obedience. Now we know that an unbelieving slave would respond with vindictiveness and rebellion to unjust treatment. We would expect that. That would be ordinary. Uh, but Peter exhorts Christian slaves to respond in a patient and forgiving manner. And he says that this attitude finds favor. It's commendable. The slave who was a follower of Jesus was to do this because of a conscious sense of his relationship with God and because he had a testimony to remain. Uh, you know, it's it sort of if someone does wrong and is punished for it and endures it, big deal. But if you do what is right and you're punished for it and you endure it patiently, that finds favor with God. Now here comes the best part. And I think it's what would have encouraged the readers the most. It's, it's starting in verse 21. Peter says, For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Think about that. Jesus was reviled. Caustic, bitter words were hurled at him. Peter was a witness to the fact that Jesus did not retaliate. He did not fight back. He did not utter threats. He was with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when Judas and the multitude came. He drew out his sword and lopped off the ear of the high priest's slave. But Jesus said, listen, put your sword back. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal 12 legions of angels so think about that the holy sovereign creator of the universe right there and yet jesus is the perfect example of submission he willingly yielded his rights did not demand his way and died on the cross to purchase our salvation did his submitting to the will of the father make him any less god any less of a son to the Father? Absolutely not. 
but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He handed his case over to his father who would take care of it, knowing that he would judge righteously. When you are treated unjustly, particularly because you are a Christian, can you dare to do the same? Now here's the rub, folks. The books aren't necessarily balanced in this lifetime. I don't know about you, but I want justice. And guess when I want it? <laughs> now. But that's not the way it works. Oh, justice will come. You can be certain of that. But God calls us to trust him in the here and now, even when it looks as if injustice is being done and prevails. Now, that's God's call for the Christian who found himself in bondage to another. Now, lastly and finally, uh, Peter moves to a very real situation here in the church. It's in which wives who had come to faith in Christ were trying to influence their husbands who were not believers. But they were going about it in the wrong way. And he spends the bulk of his teaching here early in chapter 3 dealing with wives and on the responsibility of the believing wife. Now, you might think, well, that's not fair. In fact, he does give one verse to husbands. But you see, uh, Paul deals more fully with this whole Christian responsibility of husbands and wives in marriage in his writings. Uh, but it's important for us to understand here that Peter's dealing with a very specific situation. Uh, and we ought to understand the culture within which this teaching applies. Peter devotes more time to the wives than to the husbands because it was a far more difficult problem if a wife came to Christ before her husband, who came to Christ first. Because apparently that's what was happening here in the church. You see, if a husband became a Christian first, he would bring his wife along. But if the wife came to Christ first, there is some unprecedented problems in the marriage. Women, no rights at all. Under Jewish law, a woman was a thing owned by her husband, just like he owned a goat or a sheep. Uh, she couldn't leave him, though he could divorce her really for almost any reason at any time. In Greek life, the duty of the woman was to remain indoors and be obedient to her husband's. She had no independent existence, no mind of her own. In Roman law, a woman had no rights whatsoever and was forever viewed as a child in so many ways, first under the authority of her father, and then when she married, under the authority of her husband. The whole attitude at that time was that a woman couldn't make any decision for herself. Into that culture comes Christianity with this teaching that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. Everyone is equal in Christ and access to the grace of God. So think about what it must have been like for a wife who became a Christian living with her husband who's still worshiping ancestral and political gods. Unfortunately, at least we draw from the text, uh, some of them were, were, were uh, handling the situation in very wrong ways. Some of them were trying to win their husbands by nagging them. Nancy would always ask me, am I nagging or am I reminding? Well, this apparently in this case was nagging. Preaching at them. 
Others from what, what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7 felt they should dissolve the marriage because there was nothing spiritually in common. And so Peter addresses this situation, again, with the same reasons as he did before, the matter of one's testimony and the example of Jesus. And so that's why he transitions to the situation with this word, likewise. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Apparently, these husbands were obstinate. They were refusing to listen to their wives. And so the more their wives talked, the more they dug in their heels. The more the wives preached, the more resistance they gave. And what's Peter's advice? He doesn't say, leave your husband. He doesn't say, argue with them. Don't preach at them. He didn't say, nag them to death. He does say there's more likely that these men will be one to Christ by living a holy life before them. They are watching you, Peter says. Now this whole thing about adornments probably doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us today. But in that day, apparently women were, were falling into the trap of trying to win their husbands by outdoing their own culture primping and, and dressing extravagantly. Uh, and you read some of the histories of the Romans in that day, you know, the ladies would pile their hair three feet on high, uh, lived in fear of sleeping lest they should disturb their, their hairdo. Um, but what Peter does is he focuses on the inside, not the outside. The interior, not the exterior. I do think that maybe he has something in mind. Look at verse 4. Um, let this be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. I think Peter has in mind the way Jesus described himself. When he said this in Matthew 11, Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus says that he was meek and mild. Was his meekness a sign of weakness? Absolutely not. In fact, that word gentle uh, really means strength under control. It's, it's sort of a, a word picture of, of a wild horse who's kept under control. And that's what it is. It's really a sign of, of strength in all of that. So Peter says, listen, keep on in submission because that's what God has called you to do. He gives you an example in Jesus to follow who is meek and gentle in heart. And, and allow the Holy Spirit to empower you. If you are a citizen within the government, if you are a slave, a servant, in this case we could even extend it to if you're an employee on how you live your life and conduct your affairs at, at work. Uh, and in marriage, if you find yourself in the same situation of an unbelieving spouse, how you ought to live your life before them in a way to win them to Christ. During one of my times of being awake, about three in the morning, which is not unusual this week, I, uh, well, any week, but this week too, um, 
I was thinking about this passage in particular and, and, uh, and the letter in general. And, and three things jumped into my mind and thought, you know, these are the three I need to keep going back to all the time in this letter and in life. I think that they are maybe the key to living the Christian life in the midst of difficulties and suffering. Here they are. Number one, trust God. When I'm tempted to get angry or get anxious about what's going on in the world, in our country or whatever, am I willing to trust God? Am I willing to be obedient to him by trusting God even in that? Second is do what is right. It doesn't matter what others are doing. It doesn't matter what others are saying I should be doing. Do what is right. It's something we teach our kids, something we need to do ourselves, and lastly, keep on keeping on. It seems to me that if I can do those three things, I've got a pretty good handle on how God wants me to live in the midst of difficult times. Trust God, do what is right, and keep on keeping on. Would you pray with me? Lord, help us to take your word that you've given to us to instruct us on how to live and take it into our minds and into our hearts and to choose by an act of our will to live in such a way that it pleases you. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen.